Good evening. Welcome to the Second Shift Podcast with me, your host, Rob Festenstein. Thank you to everyone who has listened in thus far to our first four editions. I have really enjoyed getting to do this and talking to some really interesting and neat people in the world. Tonight, I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to give you all a review of a movie I saw last night that I really kind of watched by accident and took away some very interesting findings about the movie and its place in history. So I hope you'll enjoy my movie review tonight. I am far from Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, may they both rest in peace, but I'm going to enjoy sharing with you my take on this film. So last night I hopped on Netflix and stumbled across the film The Trial of the Chicago 7. I had heard about the movie's production, but wasn't sure what platform it was going to be on, and lo and behold, there it was on Netflix. Originally, the movie was supposed to be released in movie theaters, uh, but like so many other things, that was given a different platform now, since movie theaters are basically null and void until we get through the COVID-19 pandemic. So this movie uh, has some influence from Steven Spielberg, but is largely a production and is written by Aaron Sorkin, who many of you know from such other notable bits of cinema and television, whether it be A Few Good Men or West Wing. Uh, I've never watched West Wing, but A Few Good Men also happens to be a very good movie that I enjoyed watching. So I'm going to give you this setting for the film. Uh, imagine, if you will, it is 1968. Uh, in the course of a few short months, Lyndon Baines Johnson on March 31st announced that he would not seek to be nominated for another term to the presidency. Uh, the Vietnam War was escalating and escalating and the troop commitment kept getting higher and higher and the war just seemed to become a mess. Regardless of what you think of the war and the reasons why we were there, one can't deny the fact that this was a quagmire for our country. On April 4th, less than a week later, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Two months later, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, who was likely to go on to be the Democratic nominee for president that fall against former Vice President Richard Nixon. And later in that summer, we head to Chicago, where the Democratic National Convention was supposed to take place, or did take place, excuse me, at the International Amphitheater, uh, which is no longer there. I remember going there as a kid with my father to see the circus, no pun intended. But the amphitheater held many a convention, and little did we know what was going to be happening just a few months later when thousands of delegates and protesters descended upon the city. So the movie starts off portraying America in turmoil as it was. 1968 was an incredibly difficult year for our country and the world. And we were in the midst of a very big ethical dilemma. So the movie starts off by saying how the incumbent attorney general, John Mitchell, wants to bring charges against eight people for inciting riots, crossing state lines to incite riots and public disruption. And they show you the eight, soon to be seven people who were brought up for charges on this. 
And there were basically three segments within the groups, the Black Panthers, the Yippies, and the Students for a Democratic Society. The groups had very different ways of achieving the same goal of stopping the war and bringing about progress in our country. There were others who were kind of independent, but they were all tried as one group, even though they may not have ever met each other. So that is the setting for the film, and the film gives you an in-depth detail of how the characters are brought to trial, both on the prosecution, the defense, and the other people involved in their lives. I will tell you, though, that perhaps the most astonishing thing for me in this film was the fact that I did not immediately recognize Sasha Baron Cohen in his portrayal of Yippie leader Abby Hoffman. Sasha Baron Cohen is probably one of the most talented people I've ever seen perform, given his range of characters and abilities, and I simply did not recognize him in this portrayal. He had taken on a East Coast Massachusetts accent, and it wasn't until I took on my phone and looked to see who the cast was that I realized it was Sasha Baron Cohen. Lo and behold, I did not know he was doing this. So to his credit, he does an incredible portrayal of Abby Hoffman, who later went on to commit suicide in 1989. Also in the film, uh, names you may recognize were Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who we may know from Third Rock from the Sun. Michael Keaton plays former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Uh, Michael Keaton, I had just seen in another movie, uh, one of the Spider-Man series, and as well as The Founder. And the last actor that I recognized within the cast was John Carroll Lynch, who ironically was in The Founder with Michael Keaton, but in this movie they did not have any screen time together. I would like to point out that the actor who portrayed William Kunstler, one of the defense team, his portrayal was incredibly accurate and spot on, down to the fact that they showed how Kunstler was known for his long hair and always wearing his glasses on his head. And when I saw that, I just said, that's brilliant. The actor's name was Mark Rylance, and I believe I'm pronouncing it right. He's a British actor and one of several British actors, including Cohen in this film, who uh, put aside, I know they may say that we have the accent, but who put aside their British accent and take on an American accent. Also, the actor who played Tom Hayden, the more sophisticated of the group, is also British, and he put aside his accent to uh, make you never think that this happened. So... We see how Kunstler does that, and they set up the defense, and it takes you through the trial. The trial uh, was very interesting to see how it was portrayed, namely in the fact that the producers of the film basically portrayed Judge Julius Hoffman of the Federal District Court in mm -hmm. Chicago to be a tyrant, and also the fact that he kept forgetting names. He would mispronounce the names of some of the defendants and the attorneys. For example, one of the Chicago Seven, David Dellinger, Judge Hoffman kept calling him Dillinger. And in another instance, one of the defense attorneys, Leonard Wineglass, the judge kept calling him Fineglass, and on and on and on. They portrayed the judge to be a buffoon and out of control of his courtroom. 
we see the trials and tribulations of the trial, what goes on behind the scene, the tactics they use, how they plan the defense, etc., etc. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Richard Schultz, who was the young federal prosecutor enlisted to take on this case, is shown to have different situations where he has come into conflict with his values and isn't sure that they're necessarily doing the same thing or the right thing. Most notably, when Judge Hoffman has enough of Bobby Seale's outbursts in the courtroom and arranges to have him bound to his chair, shackled, and his mouth gagged. Uh, an outrageous action for an American court. If we were in a third world country, we could see where that might happen. But one of the most poignant scenes of the film is where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character approaches the bench and makes a comment to the judge about it, and the judge will have nothing of it. So, through this, it shows flashbacks to the scenes of the riots of the Democrat Convention in 1968, what was going on. We see footage of the late Mayor Daley, the first Mayor Daley, and his arrangements to have the police have complete control of the city, that he was not going to be embarrassed. LBJ had wanted the convention to be held in Houston, but Mayor Daley, given the powerful figure that he is, was able to convince LBJ to have the convention in Chicago for some reason. And that is something I'm going to look into as to what were the behind-the-scenes nuances there. Daly was very popular. He controlled millions of votes in and around Chicago and the state of Illinois. So I'd be curious to know what was going on there. In the movie, uh, the courtroom scene is quite interesting. The dialogue between the attorneys and their clients and the prosecutors and the clients makes for some very interesting discussions, if not almost comical, throughout the film. They show several scenes where Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman make jokes within the courtroom, take off judges' robes to be in Chicago police uniforms underneath, and to hear the laughter in the courtroom. And perhaps the most common line we hear during the courtroom scenes is, you are in contempt. The judge was not afraid to cite anyone in contempt of court for their outlandish behavior or what he determined to be outlandish, where in reality, the judge seemed to be a little bit past his prime and could not hold his own in keeping up with what was going on in the courtroom. There were a few scenes in the courtroom that um, I found to be interesting, and there was one factual thing in there. It looked as if that the police officers in the federal courtroom were meant to be Chicago police officers just based on the color of their shirt that they were wearing. This was a trial that took place right after uh, the Nixon administration had started, and it could very well have been Chicago police officers, but note that isn't the norm that a local police department would not provide courtroom security. Yes, they showed U.S. Marshals dressed in suits of the time, but it did not uh, necessarily mean that Chicago police officers were there. So throughout the trial, they strategize at the end of each day at their home in Hyde Park, where they had set up camp uh, for all of the defendants in the trial. And they show the struggles and tactics and philosophies. Tom Hayden and Rennie Davis were the two that were the more sophisticated of the seven or eight. 
They wanted to take a peaceful approach. They dressed in suits all the time. They acted like gentlemen, whereas Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman really didn't care for those tactics, swore, engaged in outrageous behavior and outlandish behavior in the park and anywhere else in their life, and we see that conflict come between them in several scenes throughout the movie. So one night they're in the home and they're thinking, and it dawns on them that the whole reason this case may have come about was the change in the presidential administration. The new attorney general, John Mitchell, was determined to get back at Ramsey Clark for how the transition of power went. So William Kunstler has uh, an idea ring in his head that they're going to call Ramsey Clark. They go to Ramsey Clark's home and convince him to do it, despite what some in the Justice Department uh, would advise him against doing. And Michael Keaton comes in, gives his testimony, and really causes a big uh, switch there in the dialogue of the courtroom. So it comes to be that the trial gets more and more out of hand. Bobby Seale's case is, is dismissed by the judge as a mistrial because he had no legal representation. And after such, it was shown that Fred Hampton was assassinated in the raid on the Black Panther office in Chicago. Uh, that is a very historical event in Chicago, which could take up another segment in itself. So the courtroom drama continues and continues, and it shows that they are more than likely going to be found guilty based on what is happening. There were replacements of jurors. There were all kinds of outlandish things happening. So when it comes to the point where the, before the judge gives the sentencing, the judge decides that Tom Hayden, who would later go on to marry Jane Fonda and serve in the California legislature would make the victim statement, excuse me, the defendant statement, which they are legally entitled to do. And Hayden gets up and is prepared to make the speech and ends the film with a very big twist where he decides that his speech is going to be reading the names of every American soldier who died in Vietnam during the course of the trial. And the courtroom loses all of its composure and everyone but the opposition, even Mr. Schultz, gets up and stands out of respect for the fallen, the American heroes. And the final scenes show the judge losing control of the courtroom, banging on his gavel incessantly, and then it fades to black and shows you what becomes of all the defendants in the trial. Some went on to good careers, others died sadly. Tom Hayden passed away a few years ago, but I really thought that this film was a very accurate portrayal of what went on during this time, a very tumultuous Chicago, a very tumultuous United States of America. And it really encapsulates a special portion of history. Now here's a couple other just comments I have about the film. My father, may he rest in peace, worked security at the convention in 1968. <coughs> <coughs> at the amphitheater, excuse me. And this was very special for me to watch, to see parts of the city that I know well and to see how they're portrayed in the film. A couple of items of continuity and consistency in the film. I did mention about the Chicago police officers, uh, but you know, during the film they said that the convention was being held downtown and that the delegates were all staying at the Hilton 
whereas the protests all seem to center upon Garfield, excuse me, Grant Park, which is right downtown along Michigan Avenue. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, the International Amphitheater is located at 42nd and Halstead, which is basically the south side. That is not downtown. So there, that was just one factual inaccuracy of the film. But if that is the only one they have, and they inadvertently displayed a Chicago police officer in a federal district court, then we can let that slide for this. All in all, this was an excellent film. Um, Aaron Sorkin, as I mentioned earlier, did A Few Good Men. And very much like A Few Good Men, it closes in a very dramatic courtroom scene, which this did. And Sasha Baron Cohen can put another feather in his cap of his outstanding career as an actor. And coming up soon from Sasha Baron Cohen will be Borat 2 uh, on Amazon Video, or Prime Video, excuse me. So I think you all have to look forward to that. I was hesitant to go see the first Borat movie, but the, it turned out to be one of the funniest films I've ever seen. You have to take temporary suspension of disbelief into account for some of it. But all in all, it is a great satire, uh, poking fun at everything, and it is a great comedy. And this next one shows him talking about the pandemic, the coronavirus, and other things about America. So if you have the chance, see this movie on Netflix. Again, it is the, called The Trial of the Chicago 7, streaming now on Netflix. Take a look at it, and shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. You can reach me at Rob at Festenstein, F as in Frank, E-S-T-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. I'd love to know what you think of this film as well as any others that we could review on future editions of the podcast. In addition to your feedback on the film, I'd love to know what you're thinking about this podcast in general, who we could have on as future guests, and what we're doing, and what you think would be worthy of a discussion or a conversation. I am enjoying doing this and certainly welcome your input and ideas. So for tonight, Sunday night, a very cold and rainy night here in Cincinnati, I'm going to sign off and thank you all for listening. Please continue to tune in on a, at least a weekly basis to see new episodes and I wish you all good health and good evening.